Father, we bow humbly before you this morning, so grateful to be part of your church, so grateful to hold your Bible in our hands, grateful for the encouragement of what it means to gather and to sing praise to you, and, and then to receive instruction for living from your word. Father, would you help us to have ears that hear and hearts that are tender and to have attitudes and spirits that are willing to obey and to walk with you. We need your help, Lord. Life presses in upon us. The circumstances of our lives often end up in places where we never thought we would be. I particularly ask for your blessing on our homes and our families and our marriages, Lord. And as we continue our Christian Home and Family series, would you use this to speak to us, to strengthen us, to help our lights to shine brightly in this world, a needy place. And we're a needy people, Lord. We humble ourselves before you. We humble ourselves before your word. And we ask for you now to minister effectively through the word of God to us in Jesus' name. Amen. A little four-year-old girl named Susie was in preschool. And for the very first time, one day at her school, she was told the story of Snow White. She could hardly wait to get home from nursery school, preschool, to tell her mommy. And with wide-eyed excitement, she retold the fairy tale to her mother that afternoon as she recounted the entire events of her school. After relating how Prince Charming had arrived on his beautiful white horse and kissed Snow White back to life, Susie asked loudly, And mommy, do you know what happened then? And her mommy said, yes. And they lived happily ever after. No, Susie responded with a frown. They got married. (laughs) How many of you think that when you get married, you're supposed to live happily ever after? Raise your hand if you think that's true. Come on now. How many of you think when you get, you think you're supposed to, I said. You're supposed to. I wasn't asking for personal testimonies. (laughs) How many of you think when you get married, you ought to live happily ever after? Absolutely. Isn't it kind of one of the best kept secrets how tough marriage can be? Today, as we continue our family, Christian Home and Family series, I want to assure you that um, I want to come across today with love and with grace, with encouraging words. I am not a marriage counselor. I am not a psychologist. I'm your pastor. I shepherd the flock here. I take the word of God and I help us apply it to our lives so that we can live Christ-honoring lives. That's what I try to do. And the word of God applies just as much to me as it does to you. So in no way do I want to be harsh or I don't want to beat anybody up today. Today, if you're looking at your notes, our premise is this. Make sure you understand the premise as we enter the sermon time today. It is, as I've written in the heading of our notes, very few factors have more to do with the joy, the health, and the peace of our homes than the condition of the marriage. Wouldn't you agree with that? For us to have homes that are peaceful, Christ-centered, honoring to God, happy, joy-filled homes where healthy children are being raised, 
We have to have good marriages, don't we? And so it's with a shepherd's heart that I want to encourage that today. I want to tell you that I know, I know from the three services, throughout the three services, that we have marriages and previous marriages and and multiple marriages. We have a whole spectrum of marital history represented here. I fully recognize you cannot undo the past. You can only look forward. I recognize that Many of us have learned a lot. Some of you have learned so much and you wish you could go back and undo the past, but you can't. And so today I want to speak to three groups of people. We have limited time. Uh, There's a lot that could be said that won't be said. There are other categories of people pertaining to this topic that could be addressed. Um, And we'll try to deal with a variety of different topics in the future um, throughout our spring series here. Three groups of people that we want to address, though. The first group is the unmarried. Now, particularly, I'm thinking of those who are younger, who are maybe in your early to mid-teen years, and you're looking forward to marriage. And I know, you young girls, you look forward to that day when you have that wedding dress on and you come down the aisle, and you just, that's something you can't not think about. And um, young men, somewhere along the line, will figure out that they have to get married. and <laughs> Otherwise, you can't have a garage and a boat and things like that. <laughs> nah. You know, I have a special position as a pastor to be very close. I'm on the platform with the bride and the groom during the ceremony, and it's so meaningful, and it's so emotional, and it's special, isn't it? Um, but how many of us really live happily ever after? I don't want to be negative today, but what I want to do is I want to challenge us in three categories, beginning with the unmarried, um, as we look forward to marriage, that the reality of our premise is that if we don't have a good marriage, we won't have a very good home. It's simple logic, isn't it? And so one of the things in our Christian home and family series that is so important is that we understand our marriage and that that we be working on getting the junk out of our home and that we build a Christ-centered, focused marriage. I know that there's people who are adults who maybe have a marital history who are single and who are unmarried, and I would suggest that the points of application fit all of us somehow, But just know that this first point is particularly to young people who've never been married, who are anticipating being married. And the question that we want to ask is, what is God's will for my life? Who am I supposed to marry? That's the big question. Is it God's will for my life to get married? And if it is, and that is the norm, who am I supposed to marry? And how will I know that? And and so let me just uh, give you a, a premise to work on. Kind of an axiom. Until I'm old enough to marry... I want to minimize my focus upon others, and I want to grow into the kind of person that God wants me to be. You got the idea there? I know that when you get into the early teen years, or even before that, you begin to notice guys noticing the girls, and the girls noticing the guys, and you're really focused on that, and, and you really... Girls can be boy crazy and boys can be girl crazy and and we have all kinds of distorted realities going on and my point is this. As much as you can, 
Stop thinking about others. I know that you won't, but as much as you can, stop thinking about others and focus on yourself. Now, I don't mean to focus on yourself like guys stand in front of the mirror and work on your muscles in your six-pack kind of thing, you know, that kind of thing. In fact, um, um, it was a very disappointing day for me to realize that women are way less impressed by strength than they are niceness. I was extremely disappointed on that day. Because I had been working a lot harder on my strength than I was my niceness. Now I work on my niceness. I really do work on my niceness. So when I say get your eyes off of others and on yourself, I'm talking particularly about three areas that we'll capture in the uh, four areas, the four C's on our paper. Let's take a look. So until I'm old enough to marry, I want to minimize my focus upon others. Just don't go crazy. Get your focus in on you. You want to know how to be a great spouse someday? You want to have a good marriage someday? Then you've got to work on the person that you are. Four C's on which to work. Number one, of course, no surprise, is Christ. Christ is my focus. If Christ is my focus and Christ is the anchor point of my life and Christ is my consuming passion, even as a young person, you want to have God's blessing someday, you want to marry the right person someday, stop looking so hard and look at Christ. He has a plan. He's not going to let you down and you can become consumed with Christ. And even at a a young age, you can do that. You just make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. Make sure you're born again. Make sure you've been to the cross. Your sin is forgiven. Christ is your Savior. And now he is becoming your Lord and your master of your life in a way that that is just exceptional. That Christ is my life. He's my focus. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. That means surrendered. You know, the gospel and salvation is all about surrender. It's surrendering my will to Christ's will. I am crucified with Christ. I'm surrendered. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I only, but Christ lives in me. He who died and gave himself for me. This is getting very paraphrased now. I am crucified with Christ, but nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Christ who loved me and died for me and gave himself up for me. He is the focus of my life. Galatians 2.20 Secondly, you need to be developing your character. Once Christ is the priority focus of your life, you care about the things that God cares about, and Christ is your Lord and Master. You need to begin to let the Holy Spirit begin to work and, and mold you in the area of your Christian character. Chapters like Colossians 3 where we're to to dress ourselves in the righteousness of Christ and these practical qualities. And Galatians 5, where the deeds of the flesh and the old nature, the old sinful ways are, are being put away. Anger and lust and hatred and all of the negative qualities of the old ways apart from Christ. And the fruit of the Spirit is growing in me, the love and the joy and the peace, the gentleness the kindness, the self-control. Listen, those, those are spouse materials. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, self-control. That will make you a desirable person to marry. Focus on yourself. Don't go crazy looking around. Especially when you're younger. Christ is the center. The character of Christ is growing in me. And then let her see, I'm developing convictions. 
I'm developing strong convictions in my life right now. That's what I mean by the focus on myself. Now, it doesn't, work, it doesn't hurt to work on your muscles, guys. Do some push-ups, all right? It's always good. But more importantly than anything, is as I'm focused on Christ, the character of Christ is growing in me that I have established and driven in the ground stakes. I've driven fence posts upon which to put the railings to keep me on the straight and narrow, that I don't stray, that I don't end up burying myself in the ditch. Am I building into my life the guardrails of deeply embedded, non-negotiable convictions? Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as an example. I did not write this one down on the notes, but you can add it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Thessalonians comes right after Colossians and right before 1 and 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 3. And let me show you what I'm talking about here. These are deep-seated convictions that we're building into your life. And I'm talking about things upon which we never compromise. We don't compromise. See, if you compromise on a conviction, it's not a conviction, it's a preference. Okay? So here is an example of how you take the word of God and you pound it in the ground as a post and you hook the railings of your life on it and you let it guide you and you don't go outside of those guardrails. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning with verse 3, for this is the will of God. A lot of young people always looking for the will of God. A lot of old people looking for the will of God. This is the will of God. Do you see what Paul wrote to the Thessalonian believers? This is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is a word that means I am separating from sin and I am I'm separating myself from sin and unto God in holiness. I'm growing in holy living. And the sinful things of the world are being put aside and I'm growing in holiness towards God. This is the will of God, verse 3 again, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, and so forth he he writes. So the idea there would be, all right, there's God's word. He has clearly stated it is his will that I be sanctified, separated from sin, and that I learn how to control my own body and not let my body go in passionate lust like those who are outside of Christ, Gentiles or heathen, those who are outside of Christ. So I know the will of God in this area. I am to maintain my moral purity until marriage. That's a conviction. All right? That's the kind of thing you want to be working on if you're looking forward to marriage. You want a healthy marriage? You want a healthy home? You want to have a a Christ-centered home? You got to marry well. Fourthly, competency. Competency kind of speaks for itself. Sort of a practical thing. In, In developing as a young person skills and abilities that make you the kind of person that somebody would like to marry. You have professional skills that are developing. As a young man or a young woman, you're going to be able to get a marketable job. As a young man, you're going to be able to provide for your family when children come along. And you're going to be able to leave your father and mother. And you're going to be able to cleave unto your wife and establish a home because you know how to manage a home. As a young girl, you know how to manage a home. You know how to put the silverware out. And you know how to do different things. And you can say I'm stereotyping, but you find me a bunch of boys in this 
church that, and anywhere that care about the silverware. And I'll show you a bunch of girls that do care about the silverware. And I'm telling you the color of the towel in the bathroom and how to do this and how to do that with curtains and all the different things that mean that are meaningful in setting up a home and managing a home and administrating a home and how to manage your life and how to be productive. Competency. You don't want to get married and not know how to do anything. And so Christ is the center. My Christian character is maturing. I have deep-seated convictions. And I'm developing some skills. I'm not lazy. I have a work ethic that's developing. I'm desirable. That's a life check for the unmarried. Looking forward. Get your eyes off of other people and develop yourself into being the young person that God wants you to be. Second group of people are the almost married the almost married. This is an interesting group of people. I have a good bit of close contact with them in this church because they often come to me to do their wedding. Not always. Other pastors do weddings or other pastors in the area do their weddings. But I just wanted to address the almost married. It's a chance for you, based on our premise today, to evaluate what is God's will for my life? Am I going to have a peaceful, joy-filled, healthy home that's going to be Christ-centered if I marry the guy I'm supposed to marry. And so if you come to me, as I've shared with you in the past, from the pulpit, you have to get over the marriage fence if I'm going to do your wedding. The marriage fence is on your notes today. Just to speed things up, it's filled in. The first one is parental blessing. Parental blessing. And the idea here is that if you don't honor your father and your mother in a sense of listening to their counsel and listening to their advice... I'm telling you, it will not go well with you. Okay, so you can just mark it down. PV said it on April 15th, 2018, that if I marry contrary to the blessing of my parents, it's not going to go well with me. Okay, you can argue with me if you want, but I'm right. Okay, and the, way, the reason I know I'm right is because it's God's word. And furthermore, for 34 years, I've been doing weddings. And I know. I've done about 70 or 80 weddings, and I can tell you the weddings without parental blessing don't do well. And in fact, I finally figured out I don't want to be a part of weddings that don't have parental blessing. And that's where the marriage fence started. And I said, you know what, if you don't have your mom and dad's blessing and you're not honoring your father and your mother so that it will go well with you. And Proverbs chapter 1 uh, talks about, the uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, talk about grabbing on to the wisdom of your parents and listening to them, or it's not going to go well. So if you, if you come to me to do your wedding, and you don't have parental blessing, I won't do your wedding. So don't get mad at me. It's just the way it is. I'll do everything I can to help you. I'll do everything I can to encourage you. I won't do your wedding. Secondly, though, it needs to be, you need to have biblical permission. You need to have biblical permission. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 for this one. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And this begins with verse 14. It's an interesting passage there. So the idea is that if, if under the first point, before you're married, you're focused on Christ, you're a born-again Christian, you're trying to grow in Christian character, and then you fall in love with just like the perfect guy, the perfect girl, there is no such thing, but if you did, and you do, you think you have, all right? Do you have biblical permission to marry? Now look what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, 
Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? You say, Belial, he's the nicest guy I ever met. He's nicer than all the boys in youth group. I know, but he's in the category of Belial if he doesn't know Christ. I'm not saying he's not a good guy. I'm just saying he doesn't know Christ. And if you know Christ and you're committed to Christ, which reminds me to say this, you don't just marry a Christian, especially young. You don't just marry a Christian. You marry a committed Christian. I mean, you can find people that'll say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. Yeah, I was born in America. I'm a Christian. No, I'm looking for somebody who who is deeply committed to Christ, who cares about the things of God, who's growing in Christian character, who has deep-seated Christian convictions, and they're walking with Christ, then we fit together. Otherwise, you don't don't have permission. I was reminded in preparation, I was thinking about my senior year of high school. This combines point number three under the unmarried on convictions, and the application here of the marriage fence of biblical permission. My senior year of high school, I um, was very careful to take classes that I would enjoy. You know, machine shop and carpentry shop, and I played the trumpet, symphonic band, and so forth. I didn't have, I didn't know what to do at the end of the day, so I jumped into the concert choir. And I was on the risers in the concert choir, and this girl named Terry stood right in front of me, and she smelled really good. I really liked my day at school and I really liked my last hour of the day because Terry sat, stood right in front of me on the risers. I had seen her around. She was pretty cute. Um, I started trying to hang around her a little bit out in the hallway at lunchtime when the uh, window was open on the snack bar thing. You know, I tried to buy some ice cream or something, kind of hang out. You know how when you're cool in high school and you lean against the wall a little bit and then I would try to lean my elbow against her elbow a little bit and... I was like, hmm, kind of like this girl. And then at the end of the day, I get to smell her again. <laughs> her head was right here. It was a good thing, not a bad thing. So this is my senior year, and it gets to be spring in my senior year. And I think to myself, um, I really like bumping elbows with this girl, and uh, I think I should try to take her out. I, you know, I knew her. I had watched her. I had seen her dating another guy most of the years she was in high school, and I was pretty sure she was not a Christian. But I worked it out in my head that in, in two weeks, I'm going to graduate from high school, and two weeks after that, I'm going to be on the Yukon River working. That should be enough space. So I can remember exactly the place I could take you to it, Right now, in Michigan, in our backyard, one evening after I got home from milking cows, and I spent a lot of time thinking about how good she smelled when I was milking cows, and I said to my dad, Dad, can I borrow the keys to the car? My dad had an old Ford Torino station wagon with wood panels. My dad looked at me and he said, "Uh, what for? I said, Um, there's this girl that I kind of like. I'd like to take her out. Where are you going to go? I said, I thought I'd take her bowling and get some pizza. And then he said this. Is she a Christian? And I said, "Uh, no. And he said, what do you think? And I just just bowed my head and I said, um, all I said was, you're right, Dad. You're right. And I walked away and I was like, 
that's an example of a conviction that was being reinforced by a parent. I had conviction to only date or be with. I had never dated a girl before at all. And I was a senior in high school. And I, only, I had a conviction that I should only look for uh, a relationship with a committed Christian. And I was, because of how good she smelled in concert choir, willing to maybe test that conviction a little bit. And my father was there with just a word to say, what do you think? And I said, no, you're right. You know, there was a day about uh, six years, five years later when I walked into the library at Appalachian Bible College and I saw Janet Parsons sitting there and I asked her to take a walk around the pond with me that I was really glad that I hadn't violated my convictions five years before. It's not easy. So we have convictions and we only have biblical permission to marry other Christians. Matthew 19 talks about the divorce factor. The divorce factor is huge in our culture. It's huge in our church. I recognize that there are many, many people here who are into second and third marriages and, or you're divorced and you're single again. That there's, This is a huge dynamic. It's not easy. I also recognize that most of you, uh, probably all of you that are here, did not wake up one morning and say, how can I mess up my marriage? And uh, how can I end up with two or three marriages on my record and still be single or whatever? You know, you just don't do that. Life just doesn't unfold the way you want it to all the time. Decisions do have consequences, but we have limited permission to remarry once we're divorced. We have limited permission. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, that if a man divorces his wife and marries another, except for fornication, except for the violation of sexual sin in the marriage bed, you commit adultery. You can't just divorce over anything. And this is a whole huge topic. I've preached a number of sermons on it. You might be able to find them on the web, on our internet. Um, there are helpful materials on this. But my point is, as we enter into marriage, and I'm almost married, I'm thinking about, all right, do I have parental blessings? Secondly, do I have biblical permission? Thirdly, what about wisdom principles? We're talking about people who are just foolish. Proverbs talks a lot about this. We'll not take time to look up verses. We're going to be in Proverbs on point number three here in just a minute. But I'm talking about violating wisdom principles. I'm talking about living your life in a way that the Word of God warns you not to live like that. Indebtedness, for example. Uh, not having a work ethic. Quitting a good job because of some little petty reason or something and not having a job. Making decisions that are just unwise and you have a track record of unwise decisions. You're not husband material. You're not wife material. You're not ready until you're mature enough to recognize these mistakes and to learn. I'm not saying be perfect, but you're on a trajectory of being a wise person, biblically speaking. And you don't look at me and say, well, yeah, we're going to marry. We've got no place to live because we don't have any money and I don't have a car and I'm going to live in my mom and dad's basement. <laughs> you're not ready to get married. Because of all the wisdom principles you're violating. And then fourthly, are you ready to have a family? And, and this is where they look at me and they go, Pastor Van, Pastor Van, you don't understand. And, and I say, oh, what don't I understand? Please help me. Maybe I don't. Maybe I missed something. We're not going to have kids for four years. And I say, oh. So you're going to sleep in separate bedrooms for four years. Oh, then they bow their heads. You see, my, I don't mean to be facetious. And it's okay to have a plan. 
But when one of the reasons that God said in Genesis that we get married is to have a family. That's God's plan. It's God's plan to get married. By the way, some of you parents, you do know that, right? You do know that it's God's plan for your kids to get married. You don't want them in your house when they're 24, 25, 26, 27, 28. I know that these millennials are living at home forever. But some of us have a parenting problem. And we're like jealous of a love that they might have for another person. Or we just can't see our little boy going off with this girl. Or we can't see our little girl going, listen, as they mature and as God has a time and a plan and a place for them, you need to be a part of encouraging them to do God's plan, to be married. That's what God's plan is. We only get so long. Sometimes some of us have a little bit of an issue. And we end up messing with our kids a little too much because we control them and we control them to the point that we don't even want them to leave home and get married. You need to test your heart on that if that's you. Well, that's for the almost married. Are you ready for children? Genesis 1 Timothy says that if you can't provide for your family, you're worse than an infidel. By the way, if you flip the card, flip the notes, I put a text box that in the last 10 years or so, For the last 10 years or so, I have been observing something that I think is a real phenomenon. As I work with young couples, I have noticed that as they come to me early on, and sometimes it's a year, year and a half out, we're going to get married, when are you going to get married? Okay, let's meet. And they're really excited and they really love going to Dairy Queen and eating blizzards together. Things are going great. And then, then it progresses, they're engaged, they're meeting for premarital counseling, and then the wedding, we're in the shoot. We're in the shoot, and we're going to get married soon. The next couple, six, eight, ten weeks. And I noticed, I've noticed a phenomenon among young people that sometimes there is a growing recognition that maybe I am not making the best choice after all. They've gotten over the marriage fence, but there they are, they're in the shoot, and they think to themselves, you know what? I I do love blizzards and I love going to Dairy Queen and I like to sit in church and rub elbows, but man, I'm just not sure about this. And and as the time closes, and I'm not talking about the nervousness that's natural, I'm not talking about uh, the busyness of the wedding season, I'm talking about a sick, deep gut sense that this is not the right person that I've actually committed to. Say, listen, until you've come down the aisle, you have time and the boxes to remind you that these are not reasons to get married. It's not a good reason to get married if you, because of the engagement ring and how expensive it was. You do know that rings come off, right? I, I'm not trying to be negative at all, but I'm trying to say, look, do not get married if you recognize that this isn't God's will, God's plan. But you're so far in the shoot, you think, but the ring is so expensive. Take it off and pawn it. You'll get over it. It'll happen. Secondly, uh, this is a big one, but we've gone too far. Our passions have burned too hot. And we're just into this thing way too deep and long. It's an issue. But you, you're not married. And you can deal with that. And that's what the cross is for. And that's what the blood of Christ is for. But you don't get married because passion has been out of control. You can have that kind of feeling with almost anybody. It doesn't mean that that's to be your spouse. 
hurts, things are bad. Thirdly, but we've already paid for our venue, man. My dad would kill me if we back out of this. You know, you can deliver pizza and get an extra job and pay your dad back. A venue and money is no reason to follow through with a decision that in the pit of your stomach you know is wrong. And I have talked to people like that. I've had people tell me, Pastor Van, when I was walking down the aisle, I knew I wasn't supposed to marry that guy. But I had the ring. We've gone too far. The venue's paid for. Or maybe it's your last best chance. Can't let chance pass. Yes, you can. Can I tell you what I've said many times before? Single misery is not even close to being equal to married misery. Being single and miserable is bad. Being married and miserable is unbearable. You need to get your eyes on Christ. That's where you go back to number one and start over and trust the plan of God. I just felt it was a point that needed to be made. Okay, our third point, and we were going to spend the most time on this point, and it is a heart check, okay? So we've had a life check for the unmarried, we've had a marriage check for the almost married, and now how about a heart check for the already married? A heart check for the already married. Let's try to move through this material um, effectively, though. Is it really the way it has to be? Again, I don't want to be negative, but I want to challenge us, okay? Remember, back to our premise, our premise is that... Few factors have more to do with the joy and the health and the peace of my home than the condition of my marriage. And so it occurred to me that the part of the problem might be that I've made a poor marriage choice. What do I do? I'm in my marriage. It's not too good. How can I think about this? How do I think about this? Because it is possible, isn't it, to make a poor marriage choice. Marriage is a funny thing, how things can change. Heard a story about a guy named Ted and his wife, Bessie. And they made it to their 50th wedding anniversary. And their kids set up a huge celebration. They had grandkids and great-grandchildren by this time. They were into their 70s. Ted had worked construction, and he had had some hearing failure, On the day of the celebration, there was just a lot of hoopla and busyness. Late morning, it started. All the kids and the grandkids and the great-grandkids show up, and they had a great party, a great time together. It went on through the afternoon, and then by early evening, it was over, and people were leaving, and and, uh, Ted and Bessie were finally left alone there on their front porch, and everybody was gone, and the evening was coming on, and the sun was setting, and Bessie took Ted's hand and they walked to the end of the porch and they got on the porch swing just to sit down and watch the sunset. Ted leaned back and he didn't say much. And Bessie looked at him somewhat in wonder and said to him, You know, Ted, it's been quite a day. What a life. And then she said, I'm so proud of you. Old Ted turned and he looked at her rather quizzically and After a moment, he said with a puzzled look on his face, Well, Bessie, I'm real tired of you too. (laughs) You know, we all view our marriages differently, don't we? And the perspective of the man, the perspective of the woman, the perspective of time. 
Your marriage at three years is going to be different than 13 years and different than 36 years and, and then different at 50 years. We need to be in it for the long haul, don't we? Whether you're proud of your spouse or tired of your spouse, we got to be in it for the long haul. You know, it is possible to make poor marriage choices. Will you turn to Proverbs? And in the final minutes here, we will just stay in Proverbs. And um, well, we might flip to Second Peter if we have them, uh, if I feel like going that long. Um, in Proverbs, let's just remind ourselves, in Proverbs 11, for example, there are a number of ways that we make bad decisions. We'll just go a few more minutes. Thank you for your patience. Proverbs 11:22, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. And some of you guys will say, you know what, man, she was just so beautiful, I, 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 went, I wanted to marry her. And then you found out it was a gold ring and a pig snout. You know, Proverbs was written by men to men, and so you've got to be careful, you've got to flip it. Because maybe that good-looking hunky guy is like, I don't know, I was trying to think of something derogatory, but maybe he's not even a goal, he's like a, 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 a steel ring in a hog's nose. I don't know. But my point is it goes both directions. We can make poor choices. 12.4 says an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but, he, but she who brings shame is like rottenness to the bones. It goes both ways. 21.9 is the most familiar of these kinds of verses in Proverbs. 21.9, look what it says. It is better to live in the corner of a rooftop or a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. It's better to live in the corner of an attic somewhere than with a quarrelsome, difficult woman. Let's flip that. It's probably better to be homeless and live nowhere than be a wife of an angry man. You see, it goes both directions, and it's possible to make poor choices. So what do we do? How do we think? We know that 20, hindsight is always 2020, but I'm going to tell you this morning that the person you're married to is the person you're married to. How's that for profundity? To whom you're married is to whom you're married. And I want to tell you this, it is 100% God's will for you to be married now to that person. It is 100% God's will for you to stay married to that person For one thing, you've made a vow and you don't want to minimize your wedding vow. But how are you to think biblically about this? How can we, whether we have a marriage that we're proud of or a marriage that we're tired of, how do we think about this? First of all, we need to think correctly about our spouse. We need to think accurately and correctly about our spouse. Look at chapter 18, verse 22 of Proverbs. Chapter 18, verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Think about that. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Do you treat your spouse like a personalized gift from God? Or do you treat him like the trash that needs to be taken out? I mean, you say, yeah, but Pastor Van, you don't know who I'm married to. I don't care who you're married to. You're married to him. So it's God's will for you to understand that something's got to change And one of the first things that needs to change is the way I view that person. Do I view my spouse as direct favor from God? It's a gift from God, my spouse is. Secondly, letter B, thinking 
about proper thoughts, my mind, my spouse, my mind is second. You need to stop thinking about escape. You need to stop thinking about escape. Proverbs chapter 5, 6, and 7 are loaded with information about having an affair or getting involved in illicit unlawful sexual relationships and what kind of damage it will do to you. You can take your time and read those three chapters later. My mind, stop thinking about escape. Commit to this marriage. Commit to Christ. Commit to character. Commit to convictions. How about my heart? Let her see my heart. Don't let anyone else in. Let's turn to chapter 6, verse 25. I didn't write this one down. Chapter 5 talks extensively about this about finding your satisfaction in your present spouse and not looking other places for your satisfaction. Chapter 6, verse 25 says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Talking about someone that you're not married to. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. It's a warning. My spouse is God's favor In my mind, I'm stopping any kind of allowance of a thought of escape. In my heart, I don't let anyone else in. How about my mouth? I think the the easiest way to say this is what I wrote there. Just be quiet. Just be quiet. Stop talking. It's like the guy that was complaining to his buddy at work said... Man, all my wife does is talk, 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 talk. And the guy says, um, well, what, what is she talking about? I don't know. She won't say. <laughs> it's probably a testimony about a husband's unwillingness to listen more than a wife's over-talkativeness. And my point on this is this. You cannot change your spouse. And your words will not change your spouse. There's a whole bunch of verses in Proverbs there that I listed that talk about the power of words and how much damage they can do, especially when tempers flare, especially when we're disgusted with our spouse, especially when we've lost respect, especially when we don't look at them as a favor from God. Our words, our words. And men, don't you know, in anger, when you're trying to get back control, of a situation in your marriage and you're, you're at each other and the words are flying and, and you are trying to take back control and you could take off and fly away but instead you stay and fight. And what you finally do is you dominate with your words and you do it by words that are so damaging to the spirit of your wife. She'll never forget that. And you, you set yourself back in this relationship when you've lost your temper and you've said things. The only thing you can do is hold hands and run to the cross. Let the blood of Christ wash it clean because you can't undo it. The words are out. Words are out. Words have done their damage. They've pierced to the deepest part of her soul. You've put her down. You've trashed her. You've compared her to other people. You've told her what you think about her. You've revealed things in anger and in temper and you've devastated the spirit of your wife. What are you going to do with those words? The only thing you can do is humble yourself before the foot of the cross and receive a forgiveness that you don't deserve but that you can only have in Christ. Will you turn to 1 Peter as we finish up the last two? And I, I said I would stay with Proverbs, but I, I want to finish in 1 Peter and 2 Peter real quick. In 1 Peter chapter 3, on this point, 
It has to do with letter E as well, my commitment. My commitment is to do my part. Okay, I can't change my spouse. My spouse can't change me. My words need to stop because words are mostly doing more harm than good now. And look what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word. So you're, you're married to an unsaved guy or a disobedient guy. You're either married to a husband who doesn't know Christ or you're married to a husband who doesn't care that he knows Christ at that point. So that even if some of you do not obey the word, these, these husbands do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives. In other words, your grace and your spiritual character is what needs to begin to become an attraction. And I know there's all kinds of situations and you might need help with your situation, but I'm saying stop the words and live out a grace-filled life. Look what it says to the husbands in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to her as the weaker vessel so that your prayers will not be hindered. What do you do? Your job, husbands, is to figure out your wife. Maybe she needs to empty her word tank into your ears once in a while. Maybe you need to understand these kinds of things. But you've got to stop trying to change one another. And your commitment is to do your part. Philippians 2, esteeming others higher than myself even. My goal, my goal letter F, is a rich entrance into heaven. Flip to 2 Peter. And let me show you what I mean very quickly. We're almost done. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That would be Jesus Christ. By which he granted us this, his precious and very great promises so that through them, the promises of God's word, that you may become partakers of the divine nature. You, you can escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And for this very reason... We then want to make every effort to supplement or add to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control and self-control steadfastness and with steadfastness is perseverance and godliness to that and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly affection kindness love agape love for if these qualities are yours and are increasing they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was ever cleansed from his former sins therefore brothers be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election your salvation for if you practice these qualities you will never fall for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did you get that? See, you're not just saved, but you're adding to your faith virtue and you're adding to your virtue love and kindness and brotherly affection and self-control and you're focused on growing in Christ and it says if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a glorious welcome into the presence. What's our goal? Our goal is to be received well into the presence of the Lord and say, well done. Listen, these are light and momentary afflictions. I'm not saying it's not difficult, but I'm saying that we have to change the way we think We've got to get rid of the junk, and we've got to begin to, to shift our focus so that my goal is a rich entrance into heaven. So number one, the will of God for the rest of my life starts today. 
Listen, this sounds kind of corny. Change cannot occur without change. Change cannot occur without change. You can't go home and just do the same stuff or you're going to get the same thing. And the will of God begins for my life brand new today. It's not an excuse to do dumb stuff so that you can start over tomorrow that's treading on the grace of God. God forbid. But you are where you are. You have what you have. You're the home that you are. You're the marriage that you are. And the will of God for your home and your life and your marriage starts today all over again. Focus on that. What is his will? The greatest thing you can ever do for your children is give them a good marriage. Thirdly, there are two things worth living for. Number one, what my kids will say at my graveside. And number two, what the Lord will say when I enter his presence. You ever think about that? You ever think about what your kids are going to say and they're standing at the grave? And there's their dad or there's their mom. What are your kids going to say? My dad loved my mom. My dad was faithful. My mom was faithful. My mom loved Christ. Everything I am, I owe to my mom. What are they going to say? What's the Lord going to say when you enter his presence? Good job. Good job. You fought like a cat and a dog. Great. Thought you were going to kill each other there that one night. (laughs) Or you know what? You added to your faith virtue and to virtue love and to love kindness and to kindness self-control. I know that you had a difficult life, the Lord will say, but well done. You know, this morning, Darius George slipped into the presence of the Lord after 50 years of marriage. He was at home. He was at home. Bonnie, Bonnie was probably there at his bedside. I haven't talked to her yet. You know, I don't know how great their marriage was. They are wonderful, sweet, godly people. Precious people in a beautiful setting. For seven years, Bonnie's been taking care of Darius. For seven years, Darius has been weakening and he's been longing to go be with the Lord. You know, when you step into the presence of the Lord, whether you've had a good marriage or a bad marriage, the only thing that matters is when you look at his face. Everything, the only thing that matters I guarantee you, Darius George today is not thinking about wishing his wife could make an apple pie without burning it or whatever. It's all about Jesus. It's all about being in his presence. You work on yourself, and then you ask God for the wisdom to know how to work on this relationship. The greatest thing we can do to strengthen our homes is strengthen our marriages. Let's stand together and close in prayer. And so, Father, we need your help. We're grateful for your grace, your mercy, that you're a God of new beginnings. Lord, this stuff is hard. It's easy to talk about. It's hard to do. Would you renew in the marriages of Fellowship Bible Church a new, a renewed love for one another between husbands and wives? Would you encourage our hearts, help our young people to grow up with the Christ-likeness that they need to be godly spouses for the almost married as they make this huge adjustment of marriage that you would bless them and encourage them 
for all of us who are married, that we would evaluate to find reality. Then, Lord, there's a whole category of people that they almost don't fit into any of these. Maybe a single mom or a divorced dad or there's just all kinds of situations. Would you just pour out your grace on each person here today in a special way that we would learn to focus on Christ, that we would learn to live for the next world more than this world and live for your well done. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.